coming up on Influencing Entrepreneurs. You know, budget of $1,000, we leveraged credit terms from manufacturers to help us from a cash flow standpoint. We used deposits from our customers to improve our cash flow. And then to diversify our business, to make sure that we could amortize our overhead over a lot more revenue, we sought other lines of business that would keep generating income throughout the course of the year. After years of teaching business and entrepreneurship, I found that when guest speakers revealed the hardships and mistakes made throughout their professional and personal lives, it resonated with my students. That's when I thought, why not share these stories so that other entrepreneurs have access to the same insights for education and inspiration? I'm Kazmer Ward, and this is Influencing Entrepreneurs. On today's episode, we speak with Lewis Foreman of Inventus Partners. Lewis is the recipient of numerous awards for his entrepreneurial achievements. His passion for small business extends beyond his own companies. Lewis is a frequent lecturer and radio TV guest on the topics of small business creation and innovation, and was recognized by the National Museum of Education. Lewis served a three-year term on the Patent Public Advisory Committee and is the creator of the Emmy Award-winning PBS TV show, Everyday Edison's. I kind of want to cover everything in the allotted time today, so I might let you just take it from here because I've got a million questions and we'll get to what we get to. Right, well, thanks, Kasson. It's a pleasure to be with you this afternoon. Uh, you're right. I really spend a lot of my time at the intersection of both entrepreneurship and innovation. So my, my journey started as an entrepreneur, but as businesses have grown, you start to realize how important innovation is as part of entrepreneurship. You need to figure out ways to do different things or do things better than everybody else out there in the marketplace. So the first thing you found out that was better was as a college student, there was a need that was not being met. So I, I played lacrosse at the University of Illinois and we didn't have a local supplier of equipment. Back then in the mid 80s, there was no Amazon. You couldn't just go on a website and buy what you needed. So everything was done mail order or through a toll free phone number. And so there was demand for that product, but no one was satisfying that demand locally. And I was taking Econ 101 that semester, and I learned about the relationship between supply and demand. My professor explained to me that when there's demand for a product or a service, and when the marketplace is not addressing that demand, then there should be a market opportunity. And so rather than just sit there and take notes, I figured why not take action? So I started my first business in my fraternity room my sophomore year. I printed a catalog. I mailed that catalog to you know, lacrosse teams all across the Midwest. I bought the product from the manufacturers and fulfilled those orders. And so I was in business right out of the gate. There, there's a lot happening just in that one example you gave me. So I'm sure scalability-wise, you started just with your team. Right out of the gate, we, we started mailing catalogs to other teams. So satisfying the need of our own team was, was kind of the first priority, but that wasn't scalable, or it, it wouldn't have been a big enough business just to you know, sell some lacrosse equipment to one team. So from the very beginning, we mailed out our catalog. We had a post office box, and back then there were no cell phones. So to conduct business, we had an answering service, and literally digital pagers on our belt. So while we were in class, we would get paged, we would go to a self or a payphone, call in, get the orders, and you know, the answering service would just explain that we were you know, in a meeting and, and weren't able to, uh, to talk at that time. 
And you say we was this? I had a business partner, so one of my fraternity brothers. Um, I well, actually I started asking a few different people to see if they wanted to start a company, and a few of them said they weren't interested. They wanted to focus on class, uh, but I finally found a fraternity brother who was willing to go along for the journey. Uh, let's talk funding. You're, you're not buying five hundred thousand dollars of lacrosse equipment to start up, but how how do you see this startup? I, on a college student's income? We started the business with $500 each. So we put $500 each into the account, started ordering. We would take deposits from the teams when they would place an order, and we used the cash flow from, from the business to continue to reinvest in the business and continue to grow the company. Based on what you're saying is you would find out what the order is, get one, you really were an order filler at that point. That's right, we, we had very little, if any, inventory at all. We would, there, there were back, back in the 80s, there weren't that many manufacturers of lacrosse equipment. There was Brine, there was STX, those were the two major brands. So we, we had an account with those. We were essentially a retailer. Um, we would get an order, put down a deposit, get a deposit from the customer, normally around 50%, which covered the cost of goods sold. We would immediately place the order with the manufacturer. They gave us net 30 terms, which was great. We would collect, you know, receive the product, deliver it to our customer, get paid, and then we had the money to actually pay the invoices. Now we're conquering the lacrosse world in the Midwest. Um, you've already made the innovation from your university to, to several throughout the system. What's the next innovation in the, the lacrosse world? Well, the first thing we realized very quickly is that lacrosse has a peak buying period and the rest of the time there's not a whole lot of demand. And so we needed to look for ways to diversify our business. And we realized that the same teams that we were selling lacrosse equipment to needed t-shirts, they needed hats, they needed bags. And so we quickly diversified into screen printed and embroidered apparel. We would buy the blank garments from the manufacturers. We would then use local graphic designers to do the artwork, and we would use local screen printers that already had manufacturing capabilities in place to do the embellishment. So we, we in, in some respect, acted as the middleman. We would take the order, we'd get the order manufactured, we'd collect our, our profit on that order. So you literally built a sales arm. I mean, it's building a sales team with all the resources in place. Again, people think I want to start a t-shirt company, therefore I need a factory and all of these different resources. It's really important, especially early on as an entrepreneur, to bootstrap as much as you can. You don't want to go out and borrow a lot of money. You don't want to take on a lot of debt. So we were very efficient in the way we ran that business with a startup you know, budget of $1,000. We leveraged credit terms from manufacturers to help us from a cash flow standpoint. We used deposits from our customers to improve our cash flow. And then to diversify our business, to make sure that we could amortize our overhead over a lot more revenue, we sought other lines of business that would keep generating income throughout the course of the year. I'm looking back at College, college Lewis. Uh, were the conversations truly, we're looking ways to amortize our overhead over this, or how does that come up? Because these are concepts that we learn. We learn them in business school. We learn them out in the real world, but the kind of our, our business jargon deadens. What were you trying to accomplish? Well, believe it or not, entrepreneurship as a class was not offered to undergrads at the University of Illinois back in the 80s. So I didn't know 
what, what I know today. We, we learned basically by doing what we do. And so we were looking to diversify the business. We were looking for ways to grow the business and it seemed like apparel was a good way to do it. And we were in a fraternity and you know every fraternity and sorority event requires a t-shirt. Kids are always buying lots of t-shirts. So kind of pivoting our business and going more into screen printed apparel made a lot of sense when we made that decision. And then it just took off from there. Based on that path and with innovation, are you now the t-shirt and lacrosse manufacturer of the world, number one, or where do you go from there? Lacrosse was jettisoned a few years into the business. We realized that there really wasn't a future in that opportunity because the screen printed apparel had really taken off. And so we made a very kind of calculated decision to take our destiny into our own hands, we needed to control our manufacturing. So initially, we contracted all the manufacturing to other producers. We couldn't rely on delivery or quality or innovation. Those companies that were doing our printing, we were limited to their investment in capital. And so my junior year, I decided to go ahead and buy our own screen, screen printing equipment. And so we set up an operation with brand new equipment and we invested in kind of state-of-the-art equipment so this way not only could we deliver a better product but we could deliver it quicker and then our business took off from there and by the time I left school that first business that I started became the 24th largest screen printing company in the United States. So we had over 150 employees working for us, 80,000 square feet of manufacturing space. We were producing millions and millions of shirts every year. As you're getting ready to graduate, are you in the job hunt or do you pretty much know you're writing your own ticket at that point? I don't think that there was ever really a plan to get a job after college. I, I kind of doubled down while I was in school and said, this is going to be my career. And so I made the investment to you know, have a physical tether you know, uh, to the business versus all my classmates who you know, got a job after college and then moved to Chicago. So have you made the past several years uh, since then in the uh, t-shirt and apparel business? <laughs> well, I spent 10 years uh, in that, that business from, from 1985 to 95, when I started college to the time I finally sold that company. And then I moved to North Carolina to start another business in the apparel industry. But this one was focused around NASCAR racing. And as you know, if you're going to be in NASCAR racing, you have to be in Charlotte because that's where the majority of the race teams are and that's where NASCAR's licensing offices are. So in November of 95, I sold the company in Illinois, moved a dozen of my best employees with me and set up operations in Charlotte. Anybody that knows you here in the Charlotte area does not think Lewis Foreman, T-shirt apparel, NASCAR, what we know you from is Inventus. When do we leave the T-shirt empire behind us to move and where does the idea, let's call it the light bulb to say, this is my the NASCAR business was quick. Uh, in 18 months from, from the beginning when we started that business in November of 1995 till August of 97, the business went from, from zero to $20 million and then I sold the company to a public company uh, in August of 1997. And so it was a very quick and you know, successful exit. It was great to you know, realize a second exit of a business, but I had a real passion for intellectual property. And what I learned in 
the screen printing business is that the IP is really around trademarks and copyrights. But patents were very interesting because a patent prevents someone from making, using, or selling what you've created for a period of 20 years. It's, it's a mini monopoly that prevents others from getting into your space. And so I started to dabble in different areas and I started developing products uh, that I ultimately licensed to manufacturers like Nike and Adidas and other companies. And I realized that there was a lot of opportunity in fixing products that didn't work or inventing things that were absolutely new that solved a problem. You've got a whole portfolio of great ideas. I, I, I'd like to just start screaming like I'm at a concert, some of your greatest hits. Tell me some of the, the innovations and some of the ideas, and some of them from the more complex all the way to the more simplistic ideas. So we have an organization called Inventus that is incredibly prolific in the area of intellectual property, getting patents. And the stuff that we work in is so diverse. I mean, from literally, you know, toys and games and, and really basic kitchen gadgets to very complicated medical and surgical products and orthopedic braces. It's hard to, to say which ones are my favorite or which ones are the most successful because some of them sell hundreds of millions of dollars, but were relatively easy to develop, and others were incredibly time-consuming to solve the problem, but maybe weren't a huge commercial success, but it, it was such a interesting way that we solved the problem right. that, that we take a lot of pride in that as well. So some of those interesting examples, the one that I, the, that I always think of, uh, I believe it was an engineer who cut up his trash can. And I'd also like to hear about uh, uh, Dyson, which I believe you, you were an advisor for as well. James Dyson is, is an amazing inventor, amazing entrepreneur. Uh, I first met James Dyson when we were filming the TV show Everyday Edisons. And so we went out to Malmesbury, England and spent the day with him and really learned his story about his 5,127 prototypes and the journey that he went on from initially identifying a problem that was his Hoover vacuum cleaner breaking down to making a prototype out of cereal boxes and duct tape to eventually 10 years later actually getting that product to the marketplace. So it was a very interesting interview that we had with him. But then a few years later, I was asked by, by James to serve on his uh, James Dyson Foundation. Um, their U.S. headquarters is in Chicago. And so for the last, I guess, seven years or so, I've served on that board and I'm currently the chairman of the James Dyson Foundation. We, we talk about the 5,000 uh, 5, prototypes it took to get to the Dyson vacuum cleaner. What about when uh, somebody hits it head on uh, as with the trash basket innovation? The idea for the garbage can technology actually was an inventor, Franklin Ramsey from Charlotte, who was sitting in his office and the janitor came and emptied the garbage, pulled the bag out, put a new bag in and tied a knot in the corner of the bag to hold it from falling into the can. And at that moment, it dawned on him, what a waste of time. So he pulled a knife out of his drawer and he cut a few slits in the side of that garbage can and realized that if he poked the plastic through the slits, it would hold the bag in place. Well, Franklin was at an age where he didn't want to be an entrepreneur, 
but he knew he had a pretty good idea, so he brought it to us at Inventus for us to evaluate, and we realized that there was something special there. So Franklin was one of the inventors on the first season of Everyday Edison's. His idea was developed and commercialized, and today he receives royalties, you know, and he's been receiving royalties for over 10 years on that product. So number one, we, get, we grab the intellectual property, but then how do we get it to the market? Certainly, um, the, sometimes the simplest ideas are the best products. So if you can improve upon something, it's very easy for the consumer to understand what that improvement is but we weren't sure whether or not it was patentable. And so after doing a number of prior art searches, we couldn't find any disclosures of that idea out there. We were able to secure two patents on the invention, and that patent, or those two patents, enabled us to license that to over 20 different manufacturers who now pay us royalties on the product. One of the best things I always hear when people, or, or I can even say when I hear of these things is, why didn't I think of that? Well, and that's, that's really what we believed existed out there. When we created Everyday Edison's on PBS, we had this very simple belief that everyone has a great idea, but the vast majority of the population will never follow through with their idea. So we did four seasons of Everyday Edison's on PBS, 52 episodes. We won a couple Emmys along the way. But what we wanted to do was create something that didn't have artificial drama. We didn't want to humiliate people or throw them off an island. What we really wanted to do was focus on what is the journey? How do you go from that sketch on a napkin to seeing your idea on the store shelf? And so over those four seasons, there were a number of products that went on to sell tens or over a hundred million dollars. When you talk about the, the inventor or the entrepreneur's journey, it has all of that. It has comedy, it has drama, it has horror. There, there's all those moments that, that can be captured so there's no reason for, uh, for false emotion or humiliation. Well, and it's PBS, and, and there was no Shark Tank yet. So right. this was really cutting edge. The fact that there was a reality TV show around business and invention, no one had ever done anything like that before. We saw that there was a need for something like this. No one was satisfying that need. And so once and again, you know, that, that supply and demand formula is used to determine, okay, maybe this will actually resonate with consumers. What is a mistake that you see entrepreneurs routinely make? Or, or what is something that you see happening with a lot of startup companies, whether it's a product or even a service industry that you just makes you want to scream out? How many hours do we have? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you know, one of the classic mistakes that entrepreneurs make is that they just are so passionate, so excited, so full of enthusiasm that they don't really think whether or not there's actually enough demand to justify taking the risk. So entrepreneurship is really this relationship between risk and reward. And that's what entrepreneurs are good at. You know, I, I question whether or not we can teach someone to be an entrepreneur, but as, as instructors, I'm confident that we can teach people the skills that entrepreneurs use to be successful. And so one of the things that entrepreneurs are really good at doing is looking at an opportunity and weighing the risk against the reward. And that's a decision that isn't made with a spreadsheet. That's a decision that's normally made in their gut. You know, they have to look at it and say, is there enough juice for the squeeze? Am I willing to do it? And so sometimes individuals kind of forget about 
the risk and they're all focused on the rewards. They start spending money, they form an LLC, they raise capital, they rent some office space, and then somewhere along the way they realize, you know what, there's not enough profit here to justify the risk I'm taking. Or, or maybe a year later or two years later, they're profitable, but the opportunity cost is much greater and therefore their business wasn't successful. If you were to give your advice, what are resources or knowledge you would tell any would-be entrepreneur Please make sure you understand these, these pieces going forward. Yeah, so what, what I tell every entrepreneur or inventor, anyone who's thinking about pursuing an idea, is before you make that financial investment, before you quit your job, before you risk your family's you know, life savings, you really need to be able to answer five questions. The first question is, what's the product and what makes it unique? because the reality is everything that we need already exists. So you as an entrepreneur have to figure out what is it about your product or service that's going to make someone actually want to buy it. Because if you assume that everything we need already exists, you've got to convince them that what you have is better than what's already out there. Second question is you got to figure out who your customer is. And it's not everyone in the world. You've got to be very focused. You need to know their age, their income level, their education level, and their geographic location. So you can quantify the actual size of your market. Not just say, well, I'm going to get 1% of the U.S. population. Third question is you need to know whether or not there's demand. And if you don't know who your customer is, then you're asking the wrong people. So you've got to quantify demand by doing market research, by doing focus groups, by doing surveys to determine do they like your product, how much they'd pay for it, where they'd buy it, and how often they would purchase it. And then fourth question you need to be able to answer is how much money do you need? Not how much money to get started, but how much money to get you to profitability. Because if you run out of money along the way, you're gonna fail. And then the last question is where's that money gonna come from? You don't wanna start this journey until you know that you've got the capital to get you to your final destination. Even through lectures, people don't realize profitability and net positive cash flow are two different things. You can be profitable for two or three months and still be in the hole. Yeah, cash is the lifeblood of a business. It, it's the oil that, that runs your, your car or, or the, you know, the oxygen that we breathe. If your business runs out of cash, it doesn't matter how great an idea it is, it doesn't matter how much people love your product, if you don't have cash, you can't pay your bills. I think I've hammered you with this question several times and, and what you can or can't share. The example of the product that succeeded that you had the least uh, uh, <laughs> least likelihood of succeeding and the one that you thought was the home run that didn't quite meet expectations. We, we've got a building full of those types of examples, but one of the products that, that I recall specifically just feeling like there was no potential whatsoever was a product that we did a number of years ago called Eggies. Uh, it was invented by a, a suburban housewife, Betsy, Hughes, Betsy Kaufman from Houston, and her problem, her pain, was that she hated peeling the shells off of a hard-boiled egg. So she submitted to us, I hate peeling shells off hard-boiled eggs, and our engineers figured out a way to solve that problem. So they created a little plastic vessel that you unscrew, you crack the egg and drop the contents in there, you boil it in hot water, and in a few minutes you've got a hard-boiled egg that has no shell. And so when they showed that idea to me, I thought it was the silliest idea that I'd ever seen. In fact, I thought that no one would be so lazy that they would buy something like this. But my employees reminded me of those five questions that I ask everyone. They identified something that was novel, that it was different than everything else out there. 
They identified who the customer was. They did some market research by shooting a video and throwing it out on the internet to see if people would react to it. They did a quick P&L to determine what the cost of goods would be and how many units they would have to sell to break even. And of course, they knew that I would write a check if it was successful. And so they threw it out there. And in one year, we sold 33 million of those little plastic eggies. So the lesson learned there is that one person should never be the judge or jury for your product. You need to let the marketplace determine whether or not the product's going to be successful. Which kind of goes back to what one of your questions is, who is the customer? And in that case, it's not you. Absolutely. And, and if I was making the decision, I was making it based off of my interest in buying a product like that, not the vast majority of the population. Well, excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. If you don't mind sharing any information, how we can find out more about you and Inventus, and uh, even if you want to talk a little bit about Inventus Partners, which is, a, is a, I want to say, a new venture. Well, I'm happy to, uh, to help any of your students, and they can always email me. I'm sure you'll throw my email address up there on the graphics so people can get in touch with me. But believe it or not, I actually respond to every single email that I get, and I'm you know, always looking to help students master entrepreneurship and be successful in life. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Cass. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com backslash Education or visit influencingentrepreneurs.com to catch up on previous episodes with Casimir Ward.